Hey, this is the Mark Butler Show, episode 10. That's right, double-digit episode numbers now, which I'm very excited about because I have a tendency to quit on projects. In fact, I have an episode in mind maybe next week, maybe the week after, where I talk about my tendency to quit. I think that quitting is actually very normal. Sometimes it's very healthy, but in my case, I tend to quit projects as soon as they've had any amount of success. So as soon as I know I can do something, I tend to quit it, which also I think is pretty normal. Unfortunately, it's also normal to be broke and uh, unsuccessful. So this is an area where I would like to not quit and distinguish myself, separate myself from the people who tend to quit projects after they've had any level of success. But like I said, that's another episode, maybe next week, maybe the week after. This week, I want to follow up on the conversation we had in episode nine about compelling reasons to make my new product free. Now, I asked in that episode and I asked in the newsletter that I sent out with that episode. Uh, By the way, are you on my newsletter? You should go to markbutler.com, sign up for my newsletter. It's where I send kind of weekly updates, announcements about episodes and products and stuff like that. You should get on the the, uh, newsletter at markbutler.com. But last week in my newsletter, I said, hey, I think there's a strong case for me to make my, my videos for Let's Do the Books, make them free. And I asked for my list's opinion about that. And I got, not surprisingly, about 50-50 split on the feedback. Uh, One very successful client of mine and another very successful former client of mine who still keeps in touch here and there, both replied to my email and said, one said, this is insane. (laughs) And the other one said, don't make the videos free. If you really care about generating interest and traffic and referrals, just pay a much higher affiliate commission on the paid product. She said, pay 100% commissions. And I thought that was a really valid point and an interesting point. So today, I want to flip this thing on its head. I want to flip last week's argument on its head and talk about five strong reasons for making my product a lot more expensive than it is. So we already talked about making it free. Now I think we should talk about making it much more expensive than it already is. It reminded me of a quote I heard from a guy named Derek Sivers. Uh, He wrote an amazing book. It's one of my favorite business books. It's called Anything You Want. It's super short. The audio book's like an hour. So I can blaze through this book, you know, every quarter I probably listen to the book on Audible. After I read Derek Sivers' book, I heard him on the Tim Ferriss podcast, and on the Tim Ferriss podcast, he gave uh, several pieces of advice. And the one that has stuck in my head is be expensive. I don't really remember his reasons for, for giving that advice, for saying, you know, be expensive, but it's stuck in my head because it's simple and because it does line up with so much of what I've seen in my own businesses and in my clients' businesses over the last few years. So today I want to talk about being expensive and why it might make the most sense for Let's Do the Books not only to not be free, but for it to cost a lot more than the 297 or 397 that I'm charging for it today, depending on your well, what level of, uh, of access you want to the program. So today we're going to talk about what if Let's Do the Books was a minimum of, say, $997, $997 to access my videos and the support webinars and other features that I might be at, able to add if the program cost $1,000 instead of two or 300 Now, these reasons are my reasons. They aren't necessarily universal truths. They're filtered through my bias, through my personality. You've got to do the same thing when you're trying to figure out your business model and your pricing. Some of the things I'll say today are universal or seem to be universal, but mostly I'm looking at this through my own eyes, and you may hear what I'm saying and, and completely disagree with the reasons, and that's great, and that will point you in the direction of the best pricing and the best model for your products. All right, reason number one to make Let's Do the Books much more expensive than it already is, is that it would mean 
fewer relationships per dollar of revenue. So for every dollar I want to bring into my life, it would require fewer, fewer people, fewer customers in my life. So why is that a good thing? Why is it a good thing to have fewer relationships per dollar of revenue? Because that's not always true. There's a point at which if you have too few relationships per dollar of revenue, then that means you basically have one relationship that brings all your revenue in, and that's called a job. And I don't want a job. Uh, a less extreme version of this is a few relationships for the revenue that you're bringing in, and that's called freelancing. That's also That also can be great. Freelancing has its upsides. It has its downsides. The big upside of freelancing is, for me, in my mind, because I'm a freelance CFO, is that I can make all my money while maintaining relatively few relationships. So there are fewer people to be in touch with, fewer people to keep happy, fewer people whose expectations I have to manage, and I can just do a better job on those individual relationships. So that's freelancing, and I think that's great. As you get into um, very few dollars per relationship, then you're moving into more of like a software business. Or, or let's do the books at, at 197 or 297. That's a, that's a model that requires lots of relationships per dollar of revenue or per total revenue amount. In businesses where there are lots of relationships per dollar, there are a lot more people to keep happy. And in order to keep lots and lots of people happy without talking to them individually, the business becomes heavily dependent on systems and on, and on staff. And those are kind of part of the same thing because the staff and the systems you know, all go together. But if you want to have a business where you have lots and lots of relationships per dollar, then you have to commit to building a system that keeps all those people happy, that delivers them a great experience in spite of the fact that they don't talk to you. Now, for me at this point in, in my life and in my business, I can look back over the last 10 years that I've been in business, and if I'm really, really honest with myself, I'm not a great system builder. It's a skill I want to develop. It's a skill I need to develop. Because even in, in businesses where there are relatively few relationships, the stronger your systems, the happier the people are going to be with you and with your service. So I have work to do there. But right now, as I haven't really developed that skill, I haven't become an excellent system builder, I have to rely more on, uh, on a bespoke approach. Now, bespoke is this fancy word, and I'm excited to use it. And apparently, it just means custom. It just means on a more customized experience. So when a client has an issue, they just email me, and they say, here's my issue. Can you fix it? And I say, yes. But I don't necessarily have to go fix a bunch of systems in the background that, that make sure that that issue is always solved forever after in the future with all future clients. Now, I can and I should, but I don't have to because I have so few relationships that I can still be kind of one-off and custom in my approach and keep my clients happy. So that's, that's a function of having relatively few relationships for the money that I'm bringing in. But in businesses where there are tons and tons of people involved in generating the revenue, tons and tons of customers involved in generating the revenue that you, that you bring in, you have to get better and better at systems. And that usually means not only creating the system, but hiring people to implement it. So take a business like YNAB. My friend Jesse runs YNAB, and it's a great company. It's a great piece of software. Of course, I recommend it. I use it. But as that company has grown, it has required more and more and more people. I remember all the way back you know, eight, nine years ago when Jesse and I shared an office, and his entire company was him, his lead developer, a teacher who, who taught webinars to, to help people understand the software, and a support person. There were four people that made the entire business run. And I have a vague memory of what his revenues were at that point. It's not really mine to share, but the point is the revenue 
per person in the business was really, really high. Now that revenue per person is still high in that business, but the number of people required to make YNAB work these days is a lot. I don't. I think they're up to 60 people or something like that. So if you're going to have a low-priced product and you want it to grow and you want it to, to carry you to exciting revenue levels, it almost guarantees that you'll have to staff up to get there. And I've seen this happen in my clients' businesses. As they transition from a high-touch one-on-one scenario to a lower-touch uh, productized kind of business, product-driven kind of business, I should say, it almost always means increasing staff. And so then you have to decide, do I want to be a CEO and a manager, or am I more interested in being a creator and a teacher? And not that my clients who have product-driven businesses aren't still creators and teachers, but now they have other pulls on their time because they have to hire, they have to train, they have to manage. And you have to decide whether that's what you want. Lower-priced business models, lower-priced products tend to create or, or require more people to run them. And still for me at this point, I know that I want to get better at system creation and implementation, but still the idea of staffing up is it's kind of a non-starter for me. I just love not having employees. So that's the first thing that really pushes me to think, okay, am I setting myself up with a lower-priced product in the $200, $300 range? Am I setting myself up to end up in a business that requires me to become something I don't want to become or do work that I'm just not excited to do. Whereas if I price the product in the $1,000 range, then I stay in a high-touch business. What I'm observing about myself over the last few months, especially as I've been developing and now that I've launched Let's Do the Books, is that I really seem to have a preference for high-touch business models. There seems to be something about me where I want to interact with the people who give me money. And I've had my friends point this out to me. I mentioned Jesse Meekin, my friend who runs YNAB. He has pointed out to me in passing, he said this very casually, he said, you know, you never really seem to get excited about this scaled up, uh, low price, high volume business. You seem to really like the higher touch stuff. And when I hear that, my ego gets triggered because I think, no, I mean, if you're going to be a CEO, if you're going to be a business owner, you've got to think about scale and you've got to think about, you know, tons and tons of transactions, tons of customers. And that's an image that I like to maintain of myself, but the people who know me best have pointed out that I don't seem to really want that, or my actions don't indicate that I really want that kind of business. Even as I've launched Let's Do the Books, I've been, I've been fascinated to watch my own brain and watch myself in the process and notice that I feel a lot of stress about the fact that people have bought this product from me and I'm not interacting with them, so I don't know whether they're using the product, I don't know whether they're succeeding with the product, I don't know how they'd like me to change the product. And it's been really interesting for me to observe that as I've emailed this small group of customers who have bought Let's Do the Books for me and I've said, hey, you know, what's happening? Have you watched the videos yet? Have you implemented the videos yet? What's the best part? What's the worst part? How can I make it better? When they don't reply... And it's completely reasonable that they don't reply. But when they don't reply, it kind of elevates my stress even more because I just seem to have this need to know how they're doing. I'm not sure where that comes from. I'm not sure why I feel that need. I haven't done the the hard work on those thoughts, but I am at least noticing it. I'm noticing the fact that the other day when one of those customers dropped me a quick email and said, hey, something in the video is different from what I'm actually seeing online. So I'm just a little confused. My very first thought was, oh, let's jump on Skype real quick. So I literally sent her a message that said, jump on Skype, let's sort it out together. We spent about 20 minutes on, the, on Skype. I got her squared away. 
we had a great conversation and I felt this huge relief in going through that process with her. I really enjoyed it. Well, if you're selling a product for two or $300, maybe I shouldn't say it's impossible or that you really can't jump on Skype for 20 minutes with those people, but I don't think that's the model. The model is self-service. You give me two or $300, you take these videos and these lessons, implement them yourself, show up to webinars, I'll support you there. I seem to be kind of breaking the rules of my own business model by telling somebody, well, let's just jump on Skype real quick and I'll help you out. But I like doing that and I seem to want to do that. Well, if I like it and I want to do it, I probably have to price accordingly, which means at a $1,000 price point, I can, I can more easily say, hey, you got an issue? Yeah, let's jump on Skype. I'll help you out. There are also aspects of the, of the system that I teach, aspects of the implementation that I find myself thinking, you know, this needs to get done, but they don't really need to learn how to do it. So they need the result, but they don't need the knowledge that creates the result. They need the knowledge that, that comes after the specific result. So I'm talking specifically here, there's, there's aspects of the setup process. When people are setting up their, their business budgets and their personal budgets, there are steps I have them take that are important to the process, but only once. You just do this once. There's not really a lot of residual... Uh, skill that you, you get from implementing these first few steps, but you need to do them so you can get the information to help you understand your money, help you understand your process going forward. So I find myself kind of itching to say, you know what, just let me do that part for you. I'll just do it for you and then you can go from there. Well, again, at two or $300, let's say I had 100 or 200 or 300 people per year by this program, I probably can't for two or $300, I can't have those people queued up waiting for me to deliver something specific to them, one-off, so that they can then go from there. Now, if it's $1,000, yeah, probably I can. I can probably say, let me do the first part for you and set you up to go run with this, uh, run with the rest of it, but I'll just do the first part because it's a little bit tedious. It's important, but it's a little bit tedious, so I'll do it for you, and then you run with it from there. If I'm charging $1,000, I think I can make that work. I think the math works at that different price point. So that's the second reason. The second reason is... I just seem to have this itch to have a high-touch business, and that means a higher price product. The third reason it's interesting to think about raising the price of Let's Do the Books from 197 or 297 up to, I don't know, 997. And this is all theoretical, by the way. We're just, we're just friends talking across the table at lunch here. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I think this is an interesting thought experiment. So the third reason to raise the price of Let's Do the Books from, from 197, 297 up to 997 is that it takes a lot fewer transactions to reach any given revenue level. And I know that seems obvious. I mean, if you say the goal is $100,000 in revenue, if the thing's priced at uh, $1,000, I only have to make 100 sales. But if it's priced at $300, I have to make 333 sales for the same amount of revenue. Now, if I have to make 333 sales, that means a lot more people in the pipeline, a lot more marketing, and it just means you have to have a lot more volume to get to any given revenue level. So I've had clients talked to me before, and I've, I've been on the consultant side of this conversation, where they've said, well, I'm going to price it at 97. And I say, okay, well, what's your goal for, for the program, for the product? How, how much do you want this to generate in revenue for you in, the, in a year? And they'll say, well, I don't know, 50000 It's like, okay, well, at, at $100 price point, you have to sell 500 of these. How many people do you have on your list? And, you know, however many they have on their list. Now, depending on how many people they already have on their list, and how consistent they are in, in bringing fresh people onto that list. 500 transactions may be nothing. It may be like, yeah, that's a no-brainer for you. You're in a business 
that can easily generate 500 transactions per year, even before we talk about what price point. You have enough people to interact with that 500 transactions will be a relatively small percentage of the interactions that you can generate easily. On the other hand, you take a business like mine, as of this moment, as I record this, my email list has something like 800 people on it. So if I were to say, I want to generate 500 transactions in a year, again, at any given price point, 500 transactions in a year probably means somewhere between 30, 40, 50,000 contacts in a year, 30 or 40, 50,000 touches in a year. Even if you were to say, take the number of people on your list, multiply it by the number of newsletters you send in a year. So I have about 800 people. Maybe I send um, I send 40 or 50 newsletters per year. I am into that 30, 40, 50,000 touches per year, but there's diminishing returns because after a certain number of asks, so after a certain number of times that a person has heard an offer, they go blind to that offer. They're just sort of not, they're not really listening anymore. They might be reading the newsletter, but they've learned to ignore your offer because a long time ago they decided it wasn't really worth your attention. So generating 30, 40, 50,000 reasonable offers per year where the people are actually paying attention requires a list that's much bigger than 800. And I don't have a list that's much bigger than 800. So to generate 500 transactions at any level in a year means I have to be doing way more marketing than I'm currently doing and that I've done in the past. So if I don't really know how to make that many offers, then I have to price my program in a way that lets me get to my desired revenue level with a number of offers, a number of asks that I can reasonably hope to generate. I'm, I'm coming from uh, a done-for-you service with, uh, with my freelance CFO work where one transaction is usually worth five to $15,000, depending on how long the client stays with me. So that's just a few transactions per year to hit a pretty exciting revenue level. That makes a strong case for having my product priced at a level that would let me reach a pretty decent amount of revenue with a number of transactions that isn't really, really far outside what's normal for me. So if I'm used to generating 10 to 15 transactions per year, maybe it's not crazy to say, well, I'm going to jump first to 50 transactions in a year, then maybe 100, and kind of ramp up from there. But at a 197 or 297 price point, for, for Let's Do the Books to be very exciting, I have to have several hundred transactions per year, and I don't have a track record of doing the marketing required to have that many asks, to have that many sales. If you remember from episodes where I talked about my membership business in the past, my business partner handed all the marketing for that. He generated all the demand for those products, and my job was to monetize that demand. Well, now I need to generate the demand And it's not something I have a track record with. So my pricing probably needs to compensate for some of my marketing inexperience by making it so when I do make a sale, when I do generate a high-quality contact and then then make a sale, that sale is worth a lot more. Speaking of making those sales and, and doing that marketing, the fourth reason that it makes, I think, a lot of sense for me to raise the price of Let's Do the Books is that if the program costs let's say $1,000 instead of $300, there's a lot more dollars per transaction available for marketing. If I sell a $1,000 product, I could, I could easily spend $700 on marketing and still come out with $300 in profit, which is what I'm hoping to get now by selling the program for, for $297, let us say. So if I raise the price to $1,000, I've got all this 
wiggle room with my marketing dollars that I can learn marketing. I can compete with other people on Facebook and paid platforms where there's a, there's a learning curve that can be expensive. Well, if my program costs $1,000, then there's a much bigger margin of error for me in the quality of the marketing that I'm doing. As I'm figuring it out and I'm not very good at it, that higher priced product is supporting my learning. Whereas if I go the other extreme and I'm trying to advertise videos that are either free or cost 97 or 197 or 297, the margin of error is much narrower. So I have to be much better, much more quickly at the paid advertising to have the whole business work. Otherwise, I end up in a lot of debt and potentially even fail. But I sort of can buy myself a big buffer by raising the price of the program and not only giving myself more dollars per transaction to advertise, but reducing the number of successful transactions I need to have, like I was just talking about. So there's sort of this double benefit to raising the price. It means I need fewer to succeed, and it means I have more money available to create a single successful transaction. It also makes my offer a lot more compelling to affiliates. Now, in the last episode, I said, if the videos are free, then I put referral partners in a position to say, hey, there's this great set of videos, they're free. And what I'm appealing to there is the fact that they don't have a great resource to send people to. And I'm now giving them a great resource. And not only is it a great resource, but it's a free resource. So they get that feeling of, Yes, I just did, I recommended something great and it's free, so I really gave value to the person that I just referred you know, to that product, which I still think is a valid point. Another way to accomplish the same thing is to go to those same business coaches and say, let's create a, let's create a relationship here where when you send me someone, I'll pay you a nice commission. So you're able to generate more and more revenue from the same size list or from the same size community without having to create another product monetize my product. I just had a conversation with a client the other day where I said, hey, you have some products that you sell. I would love to add Let's Do the Books to those products as a free bonus. You can give my product away. And I know that I'll be getting a high quality person because they're paying you for your program. And then basically, I want to make it easier for you to make your sale by giving you a high quality bonus. And then I get good, good quality people into my world. It was so interesting and I think really insightful on her part when she said, here's the problem. If I give it away as a bonus on my program, then the expectation people have is that they can ask me questions about the program. But if you and I record a class together, and in that class we talk about bookkeeping, we talk about finances in a business, making smart investments, and if I just put that class in my community, then people can go from that class to your product and when they sign up, you you can pay me a commission but then no one will have the expectation that I can answer or should answer questions about your program. So she was making the case that it should not be free. I offered it to her as a bonus on her program, and she said, I don't really think that benefits me. Wow, that's insightful. So for affiliate partners, for these business coaches that I want to support so that they'll send me people for Let's Do the Books, it may make more sense for them to just be a paid referral partner instead of uh, a free referral source. Okay, last reason that I think it makes a lot of sense to raise the price of Let's Do the Books to something scary, thousand bucks or more. I don't know why this is true, and it does confuse and frustrate me, but it does seem to be the reality that higher priced products attract lower maintenance customers. I don't know why it's true. It doesn't make sense to my brain because I just think to myself, why with an information product does a higher price attract a lower maintenance customer? Now, 
I'm, I'm careful with my words here because I don't believe it's a better customer, higher quality person. I, I don't like that language, but I have observed that the cheaper the product, the higher maintenance and more demanding the customer tends to be. I've seen this in my clients' businesses over and over. When my clients offer payment plans, like um, let's say their program is $1,000 and they offer a payment plan that's something like 12 payments of 97 the default rate on those 12 times 97s is really, really high. Whereas if they have a payment plan that's like three times 397 or four times 397, the default rate goes way down. It's totally counterintuitive. You would think that higher priced payment plans would create higher default rates, but they don't. Lower priced payment plans tend to create higher default rates. Also, my clients have told me that the cheaper the program, the more demanding the client they get. The more the client seems to want handholding and demands changes to the program or demands extra support or whatever. That reminded me of my old membership business that I talked about a few episodes ago. There was a short time where I hired one of my members to be sort of a, a concierge. And I said, for everyone who's in their trial period, so they've paid us a dollar for their 30 day trial to this membership. I want you to make yourself available to them for free coaching. And my thought was, I will blow their minds with this amazing support in their first 30 days of the program, then they'll want to stick. And not only will they stick, but because we've given them such a good relationship and good experience during the first 30 days, they'll hang around for a long, long time. So I told him, every new person who signs up for a trial, we're going to send him an email, and the email says, Matt is your resource for free coaching. And I thought I was so smart. It was well-intended, but of course it was a disaster. And the reason it was a disaster is because you had people who seemed to have no sense whatsoever that the idea was to give them a couple of nice experiences so that they could be successful, but not to have 50 email exchanges with them. So we had a few people who, when they heard this offer of free coaching, I I guess I can't blame them, but they heard this offer of free coaching. They're like, well, I'll take your free coaching. And they really thought that they could do daily email interactions with this customer concierge sort of forever. And they would ask them, so many detailed questions. And the most frustrating part was they would ask questions that made it clear that they weren't even consuming the material. So they had completely abdicated their responsibility for success in the program, and they decided they were just going to take advantage of this free coaching. I don't know why it's true that people who pay more tend not to do that, but it just always seems to be the case. So when I think about making the videos free, and let's do the books, I'm envisioning a lot more people using them and especially free seekers, I call them free seekers, free seekers who would be much more likely to point out this video is slightly out of date, or there's a video where the button in the software says submit, but you say it says go. I just imagine people nitpicking, and then I imagine if I'm not highly responsive to these free people, to these free seekers, then I imagine them on Twitter and on Facebook, oh, well, yeah, the videos are free, but don't expect any help because that guy just doesn't seem to want to help anybody. He just seems to want to make his money and not do anything. It's not that it always happens. It's that the more you give away for free, the more opportunity that opportunity there is for that kind of experience. So you just have to decide whether you want to do that. Those are my reasons. Number one, fewer relationships per dollar. Number two, I seem to prefer higher touch businesses. Number three, fewer transactions required to get to any given revenue level. Number four, there will be more dollars available for marketing and sales. And number five, higher price products tend to attract lower maintenance people. Those are my reasons. Now, like I said, this is all a thought experiment, and I don't know what I'm going to do. 
I've sold a good number of people at uh, into Let's Do the Books at this at this uh, entry level price, this one ninety seven or two ninety seven. I'm happy with how it's going. So there's there's not a really important there's not a great reason to make a big change right now. But it is a good thought experiment to counterbalance the idea of making the whole thing free. So my last thought for you is both of these ideas can work. Business is really not about choosing the thing that's going to work. It's about choosing the thing that you end up hating less. I know that sounds crazy. What I mean is you really, in business, you get to pick your pain. Every business model has some pain associated with it. In the free business, the pain associated is, is this high maintenance, potentially highly entitled customer or free user. In a high ticket business, it tends to be that you have to be super responsive to clients and, and they, they can also be very demanding, but there are fewer of them. So you really get to pick your pain in business and you just have to decide which pain you choose and then commit to it fully and run with that. So my thought for you this week is, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do with Let's Do the Books, but as you think about your own business and how to price your products, think about the most painful parts of any, any possible direction you take it and pick the direction whose pain is more desirable. Because both directions will have great upside. It really becomes about choosing the pain that is more desirable. So that's my thought for this week. That's episode 10 of the Mark Butler Show. Jump on my newsletter at markbutler.com. If you haven't left me a review yet on iTunes, I'd be really grateful if you did. And I will talk to you next week.